Welcome to the Scalable Real Estate Investing Podcast, where we discuss the most scalable strategies, tools, and approaches to successfully invest in real estate. Learn how to make the most impact of your time, automate your real estate investing business, find off-market deals with minimum time invested, and leverage your capital to create as many income streams as possible so that you can achieve true financial independence. Thank you for tuning in. I'm your host, Mason Clement. Hi everyone, Mason Clement here. Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to ask you one question. Are you sick of the wild swings in the stock market and ready to try something different? Did you know that investing in stocks actually put you at the very bottom of a company's capital structure? Meaning that there's practically 0% chance that you're gonna get any of your money back in the event that the company files bankruptcy. So basically you're putting yourself in the riskiest position for a questionable return. Personally, I hate the unpredictability and just waking up and having half of my investment gone when I didn't do anything wrong. So what a lot of people don't know is that you can actually make higher returns on a consistent basis by investing in the opposite end of the capital structure, which is actually the safest place to be, which is on the debt side in a first lien position. And you can do that by investing in real estate and specifically investing with my company in notes that are backed by the land that we purchase. So if you're ready to diversify your income stream, go ahead and go over to scalablerei.com and click on invest in the top right corner. There you're gonna find a form that you can fill out to determine if you're eligible to invest with my company, Celion Capital, and we'll be reaching out to you to schedule an introductory call and speak more from there. So thanks a lot, and let's jump into the episode. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining another episode of Scalable Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Mason Clement. And today we have Jeremy Friedman of Stoic Equity Partners, which is a commercial real estate investment company focusing on the industrial space in Southeast United States. So I thought it would be really interesting to have him on, um, especially as it's, it's somewhat complementary to my land investing business. And I thought that there'd be maybe some synergies and some interesting um, things we could learn from it. So Without further ado, let's jump into things. Jeremy, what's going on? Hey, Mason. Thanks for having me. Um, it's a beautiful day down here in South Alabama, so I'm uh, glad you had me on. Appreciate it. Look forward to talking real estate. I always love talking real estate. All right. Perfect. Yeah, I have, I have a friend over there. You said he's, he lives in South L.A. South there LA. you go. I'm in L.A. Lower Alabama, Lower right? Al That's it. Lower Alabama. Uh, we're in Fairhope. <laughs> And Daphne, we're on the eastern shore of Mobile Bay, so uh, so a beautiful area. We're actually the seventh fastest growing uh, uh, county in the country right now, Baldwin County, Alabama. So a lot of lot of growth down here. Oh, nice. Yeah, it's funny. I was actually working that market, Baldwin County, and uh, for that same person I told you about, and then a uh, Mobile County was another investor looking to build RV parks around there. So yeah. I like the the market a lot, and you probably know it a lot better than I do. Well, we I've been here for 20 years now, and so we uh, and, and been in real estate in Baldwin County for uh, 14 years. So yeah, we uh, would love to uh, if you're around, love to work with you in the market some, or or give you any benefit of any of my knowledge if you if, if you're doing any work in the market. All right, so, that sounds good. Yeah, I'm actually based in the Dallas area, so it's just a, a short drive. Maybe still 10 hours or something, but not too far. <laughs> Short flight, I'm sure. Yeah. Just jump yeah. over there. But yeah, why don't we actually jump into that? You said 14 years you've been in real estate. So what's kind of your journey look like and what brought you into eventually starting Stoic Equity Partners? 
Yeah, so I'll actually back up a little bit more. My first career, I like to call it, was in investment banking. I was a um, institutional bond broker um, for a, 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 a capital markets group out of Memphis, Tennessee. Um, and we were bought by SunTrust and uh, did not want to move to the Atlanta market. They were changing some things around. And so um, I moved to now Fairhope, Alabama, where I live now, but this was about 20 years ago. And at that time, actually uh, continued to work in the bond business for a different firm, but uh, ended up starting a uh, residential home building business. Um, and it was with a partner uh, that was supposed to really run the day-to-day -day, and I was going to run the office work and long story short, ended up having to protect my investments and, and buy him out and really get into the home building business. And to put some perspective on it, we started in 2006, uh, shortly before uh, the 2008 crisis. <laughs> so, um, it was uh, quite a ride. I timed it perfectly. The, the Actually, the home, home uh, sales started to dip in third quarter of 2006, right when I got into the, the market. So it didn't obviously, you know, come to full fruition until 2008. But um, so, you know, through home building, I was, we started as a, a, in a capacity of building some production homes and then ended up pivoting several times to more custom homes and what I called high performance, but they were actually green certified uh, homes. This is pretty, you know, back at the time when that was a pretty big movement. Uh, built the first couple of green certified homes in the state of Alabama at that time. Just kind of kept pivoting until finally <clears throat> in 2011, ended up uh, leaving, uh, throwing in the towel with that and went to work for a commercial real estate broker. Um, who, uh, excuse me, commercial real estate developer out of Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Uh, he was doing single tenant net lease retail development and I worked mainly in the disposition. So they would develop, uh, we would, you know, leases would commence, we would sell, sell off the properties to investors. It had a lot of similarities to, um, a lot of similarities to bonds actually. So it was, it was a pretty good fit. Uh, worked with him for a few years and then started out on my own as a, in real estate brokerage. So, uh, again, focusing on single tenant net lease retail properties um, all around the southeast. So I would represent lots of O'Reilly Auto Parts, Dollar General, CVS, Walgreens, Taco Bells, you name it. Um, <clears throat> pretty much from Virginia to Florida, right? And so... Along the way, I was in. Um, I was with uh, at, at a small regional firm here in in uh, Baldwin County called Bellator, and one of and I was in their commercial department. And one of uh, the other guys in the department, Grant Reeves, and I struck up a friendship. Uh, he went on to work at Marcus and Millichap in their hospitality di division. Uh, hotel selling limited service hotels to investors. And I uh, went on to start Catapult Properties, a, a regional uh, brokerage firm that we sold single tenant net lease in, uh, as well as some general 
general commercial in the Baldwin County area. But um, in, in we, Grant and I stayed in contact and always wanted to get on the principal side. And in 2020, when COVID made the phones stop ringing for a little while, we were able to get together and kind of hatch the plans for Stoic Equity Partners, uh, which is a private equity real estate company. Uh, we syndicated our first 10 deals uh, where we, um, you know, put together groups of investors and purchased, we started in self-storage. Our first four deals were self-storage. Uh, we did a, an adaptive reuse of an old grocery store box. We did a ground-up development over in Pensacola, Florida. We did a, a, a very large expansion project in Little Rock, Arkansas, where we tripled the size of a, an existing facility that we purchased. And then we uh, bought a, a fairly stabilized facility as well. So um, the market, with especially as interest rates were rising, it became more and more difficult to make those self-storage um, numbers work. Um, and we were seeing, we were having some, some concerns about supply in the markets. Uh, we are in a very fast-growing region down here um, in the Southeast, but we... Uh, we're seeing so much supply, it was, it was really hard to find anywhere to develop new. Uh, cap rates were very low to acquire. Interest rates were rising in our face. And so it was, we kind of, at that point, made a pivot to value-add multi-tenant flex industrial properties, which is where we land. And maybe I've gone too far, but that's that kind of gives the background of where I'm came from and where we currently are with Stoic Equity Partners. So. Excellent. Yeah, that's actually really helpful just to understand more context and background and what brought you to that. And so what what had attracted you all to, to doing this flex industrial? And um, while, while zoning maybe for self-storage might be like a, maybe a light industrial, like how do they differ um, for someone that's maybe not familiar with all the differences and nuances? Um, so zoning is pretty similar, actually. I mean, we're, we're not in a heavy manufacturing uh, type, you know, th these are these are multi-tenant, meaning in most of our facilities, the tenant, the, each suite is anywhere from, say, 1,200 square feet to, say, 5,000 square feet. <clears throat> and there, you know, any number, any configuration of office to warehouse that's, you know, we like to see less office, uh, something less than 50% office space to 50 or more in the warehouse. So we call these the mullet of commercial real estate, right? These are, you know, business up front. You've got a nice storefront where there's either office or showroom. And then and then in the back, we've got roll-up doors, dock highs, and it's it's all party in the back, I like to, like to say. But um we love the multi-tenant you alluded to, uh, multi-family and storage is also multi-tenant. We, we love multi-tenant assets from a, a vacancy mitigation risk, uh, vacancy risk mitigation. In other words, uh, you know, as, as you and your listeners understand, I'm sure that, you know, if, if we all constantly have tenants moving in and out of these facilities and it doesn't hurt our cash flow, it, it, it's, it's built into our our models. In other words, we're not concerned when we have a, a tenant not renew. As a matter of fact, based on uh, inflation and where rates are going, lease rates are going, 
we sometimes encourage our tenants to move out if, if at all possible, um, you know, or, you know, if, if they don't, if they don't have renewal options that gives them a right to a certain rental rate, we, we try to move them to market rents, which is part of our whole thesis. Um, so the other part is, is it's been, and this, this is very important from a, a land development uh, play, but it, there's been very little flex industrial property developed. Uh, matter of fact, it's the only asset, only major asset class in commercial real estate uh, that has actually shrunk over the past 30 years. Um, and the reason is a couple of it's, it's nimbyism. People don't want it in their backyard. Uh, so the, the municipalities are, are hesitant to, to, uh, to, to approve it, but also, and the, probably the biggest factor is rental rates and construction rates just don't make it profitable to, to develop brand new property. So we are in, we, we end up buying facilities below replacement cost. Currently our portfolio of what we own and what we have under contract, it, it averages out about $93 a square foot that we're buying the property, buying these facilities. And current replacement value would be more in the 140 range based on bids that we've gotten to develop. <clears throat> and, you know, most of our rents at these facilities are in the single digits. So you take somebody paying a $9 rent, it doesn't really support a $140 construction cost or replacement cost, right? And so uh, we're able to buy them below replacement cost. We are able because, the, again, we're in a growing, growing markets. And so there's a lot of demand, but very little supply and very little new supply. Now, there's been tons of Class A industrial built in the last, uh, at least especially in the last 10 years, there have been a, a, a very significant supply of large bulk Class A industrial, but multi-tenant flex there really has been very little and, and some of it has gone away because of redevelopment. And, and, um, and so we're able to push rents that falls into our, we're able to push occupancy, push rents and we're um, which falls into our whole value add thesis. And at some point, somebody's going to be able to develop it and they're going to develop it and that's going to help push rents a little more. So, we, uh, we think we're in a really sweet spot with buying value at Flex right now, so. Okay, and how many tenants usually do y'all have in one facility or location? So our sweet spot is, is between 50 and 100,000 square feet of space. And so uh, we typically are ranging anywhere from say 20 to, 20 to 40 tenants in that space. Uh, 20 to upper 30s. So we are buying a couple of larger facilities um, that have a few more tenants. We're, we're buying um, uh, 128,000 square feet in Louisville, Kentucky right now um, that we're closing on this week, as a matter of fact. And then we're buying 158,000 square feet in the Jackson, Mississippi suburbs. So, um, and those do have more, but uh, you know, in general, our sweet spot's really that 50,000 to 100,000 feet. Um, we're buying them from s sellers who are, um, who are 
legacy owners that maybe they're um, not not really motivated to push rents. They're not motivated to you know maintain or improve on the property. So we're able to you know we'll, we'll buy the property. We'll set aside some money to to do any deferred maintenance or improvements on the property and help help boost rents over time. Uh, whereas a lot of those things, if you've got a legacy owner that they would have to draw out of their cash flow to do that. A lot of times they're disincentivized to, to, you know, maintain the property or improve the property. Whereas we can do that on the front end, help us get higher rates, which in turn helps us sell at a higher sales price. And so it works, works well for us. Um, so we're, we're uh, and, and a lot of those owners are in that 50,000 to a hundred thousand feet. You get over a hundred thousand feet, tend to be more sophisticated owners that, um, which is fine. We like that. We love that product. Um, but there's usually a little less juice uh, to squeeze in that from a value add standpoint. Okay. That makes sense. And so if I was a limited partner, just trying to evaluate different investment opportunities and looking at say a self storage facility syndication, or maybe multifamily or this multi-tenant flex industrial, what are some of the, maybe the pros and cons or obviously the, the reasons why I should invest in this flex industrial over those other opportunities I'm looking at? Well, so, you know, I always feel like multifamily has got a, a huge, um, uh, huge pro in investing in multifamily. I mean, people can do without self-storage uh, people can do without a lot of things, but they typically need somewhere to lay, lay their head, right? And so um, I feel like that's a real pro when it comes to multifamily. The challenges I see right now with multifamily have been uh, twofold. One is the rate that rental rates have uh, rose so quickly that I think they've really probably uh, plateaued, if not going to see a little bit of decline in the short term. The long term, and it goes back to the 08 housing crisis, right? That they, you know, houses, homes were being built in the million three to million and a half units a year up until 08, and then they dropped to half a million. And that's ha that's gone on now for, you know, 12 years um, and or 14 years now, rather. And that has made it where, um, that's made it where there's a real undersupply of housing units nationwide. So I think I, I, I don't long term, I don't see any issues there for multifamily. But short term, I think there's two issues. One is the rental rates have kind of probably plateaued for a little while. Um, and then whereas on flex industrial, I feel like we're on the early stages of that rise uh, ver versus plateauing. Um, and then the other side is is a lot of the multifamily is done with floating rate and very short term bridge type loans, whether they're either the value add or development. Those are typically using a bridge loan, variable rate, things like that. And uh, that's that's really hurt several a, a lot of a lot of people out there. But all in all, I think it's a very great product. Um, Self-storage, I love the, the fundamentals of storage as well. And um, I just feel like currently 
you've got an oversupply in, in some markets and a lot of new supply continuing to come on. So back to where I was saying, hey, you know, flex industrials actually shrunk. The supply shrunk over the last three decades. So if you think to self-storage and multifamily, you know, that supply has, you know, rapidly risen in the last 10 to 20 years versus and, and versus demand. I think it's probably gotten a little out of out of whack there for a while. Um, and then when with higher mortgage rates, people are moving around less. Uh, you know, a lot of people are sticking in their home where they've got a 3% rate rather than selling it to move down the road or trade up there. They'd have to, in a lot of cases, trade down if they sold their house and then refinanced at a current rate, a new purchase. So that slowed down the velocity of people moving around a little bit, which is, is hurting storage. But, you know, all in all, it's, it, Again, I think fundamental and long term, it's a it's a great asset class, uh, great asset class to be in. But you know, uh, for us, we see, and especially in these growing southeastern markets where you've got a net migration of people moving to the southeast, there is um, a very strong demand for more flex space. Uh, we're buying it below replacement costs. We're able to push rents higher. You know, it's insulated somewhat from the work from home phenomenon that, that COVID exposed. And that's because if you need a warehouse, typically you're not going to be able to work from home. Right. So, um, you know, the, the next move down from there is having everything in your garage. And that just won't work for an HVAC contractor or a Terminex or, a, you know, these type of service companies that need an, an office and a warehouse and so um we 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 feel like we're early in the trends on flex industrial um we do feel like eventually it'll turn into the, a development phase similar to what's been going on with self-storage um and we want to ride trends. so that makes sense and you hit on it just a, a little bit a second ago but what is like the the kind of perfect typical customer profile that you'll have for the tenant profile yeah. using these spaces. So it, it is a wide variety. Um, we have everybody from national tenants such as FedEx and Tyson Foods and lots of national franchise such as Terminex or um, the IC Corporation. For some reason, we have multiple. We have them in multiple of our properties around the, the southeast. Um, so, so you've got the, the the national tenants in there. So the last mile people, JB Hunt, FedEx, those guys are in there. Um, you've got <clears throat> regional and franchise people. Um, you know, we've got moving company, a lot of service providers, right? Moving companies. Um, HVAC contractors, engineering firms, um, and then then you do have a little bit more of uh, the more traditional kind of office user and or because we tend to be the low price option in the market. In other words, flex space is typically cheaper to lease than retail or traditional office or, you know, any other 
space. So uh, we do get, we're signing uh, a lease right now with a, um, uh, like a salon, right? That they're using one of the spaces that was more heavier built out office. Uh, typically our MO is we go in and we tear out a lot of that office that's built out in these facilities and get it back to more of a 50, 50 or, or even less office space, because that's where, that's where the, the demand is. Um, uh, but you know, we, like I said, we just had a salon come along and like the space as it was built out and, um, taken, taken it. So it's a real broad variety. I mean, we have real estate companies, um, you know, we have several pharmacies that are not, not a retail pharmacy. Uh, we've got two facilities that have mail order pharmacies and we've got one facility that has a pharmacy, uh, that they service all of the, um, assisted living facilities in the state. And so they ship, they have their own vehicles that delivered all those facilities from this one, um, you know, one facility. So it, again, it's a very broad spectrum of users that can use these and need this type of space. All right. Yeah, it's definitely helpful. Um, actually, it's funny where I live in Richardson, just outside of Dallas. Um, in my part of town, you have a lot of, I think what you're talking about, you have like some metal fabricators, um, Terminex actually just, just down the road and yeah. those different people. So I guess obviously like a metal fabricator, they get all this material and stuff. They got to do their work in there. And I guess for pharmacies, they need place to store all that product that they're mailing out. So yeah, this makes a lot of sense for all these different use cases. You know, we always end up with a, 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 a CrossFit gym and a, uh, we always, you know, a lot of times we'll, we'll end up with um, uh, uh salons but but usually it's more like a i mean we've got several like online boutiques where they they'll, they'll ship clothes in and out and they have a little space up front where they'll model the clothes and post it online and so it's very interesting what all uses that people find for these spaces so. okay that makes sense yeah i actually had another guy on my podcast um i'll I'll have to put the, the link in the show notes or something. We were talking about industrial real estate space as well. And for him, he was also talking about like the like the weight of the equipment that's going in there. So you have to pay attention to like the thickness of the concrete and stuff. Do y'all get that granular for your properties or how's that work? Yeah, it, we we have some that have very high clear height and um and larger warehouse space. And those in particular, we need to be aware of the floor thickness to make sure that, uh, you know, fork trucks and or any pallet racking uh, and storage, you know, vertical storage, that there's enough uh, enough thickness to handle that. But uh, a lot of, most of ours in the, you know, in the thousand uh, or said 1200 to 3000 square foot range, there's not really a, uh, a scenario in, in say a 16 foot Eve height. It's not really a scenario where they get, can get enough weight in that to, to become an issue. Um, but a lot of our properties are built, um, you know, concrete tilt wall construction and, and pretty, these are heavy duty built buildings. Um, they're not, you know, it, so 
Yeah, but you know, a six inch slab will do, will handle a lot. So, okay. Something okay. we run we run into a lot that could should should be of interest to you in the land world is is you know people are always looking for um, yard space and and another and also and beyond that is just iOS or or industrial outside, outdoor storage right so uh, a lot of people you know come to us and say hey do you have I just need an acre of land fenced in and gravel to store, you know, vehicles or, um, or materials on and, uh, which is a great covered land play use for, for land. If, if, uh, and we're seeing way a lot more demand for that. Um, in most of the markets we play in, which are kind of these secondary markets in the Southeast. So like Jackson, Mississippi, Birmingham, Pensacola, Little Rock, in a lot of those markets, there tends to be a lot of land. And so we kind of are a little, uh, you know, there's not a lot of land entitled for iOS, uh, but those are, are some good plays, um, I think, that could be of interest to, to people in the land game. Excellent. Yeah, that's actually what I was about to ask as well. And, and also, so that, piggybacking on that, this location, what would you think? Besides like being next to an interstate highway, what are some other good locations to choose? You know, um, certainly access from the transportation lanes, like you, like you mentioned, being near a, an interstate or a highway where trucks can easily get in and out of. Uh, but, um, you know, it, it tends to need to be isolated from uh, from from the residential areas. In other words, um, it needs to be close enough that, you know, especially in our flex world, we want to be in and around those affluent suburbs because it tends to be the owner of the HVAC company lives in that suburb and they won't, don't want to, you know, drive a long ways to their office, right? So we, we try to locate... We try to buy properties located in, in affluent suburbs, but they, there's there's usually a geographical or or some some other way that they're they're kind of isolated from from those areas, just so that um, you, you don't anger your neighbors, right? And then an iOS, it would be the same as well. Um, you don't want trucks coming in and out at 5 a.m. Uh, right next to, uh, you know, an affluent neighborhood, but probably not going to get it entitled for that next to an affluent neighborhood anyway. But, um, but that's always a concern is, you know, you don't want people coming and going and, and disrupting the neighbors, but main thing is, is access, uh, you know, where's the most convenient for trucks and, and, and commercial traffic coming in and out. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah, that reminds me of there was a, a parcel I was looking at near San Antonio by I-35. And the biggest problem, though, I really needed to do an assemblage where I get the adjacent parcels, and I tried, but was not successful in that. But um, I say that because it was so narrow, like some of the people in the trucking business were saying, well, that turning radius is going to be so large, you got to keep that into mind as well. You probably have to do a traffic impact analysis, maybe spend half a million dollars installing traffic lights or something, or I don't know. 
But um, I say all that too because this was just actually the, the northern tip of it was in city limits, but it seems like it'd be easier to entitle things that were either in the ETJ or county level. What do you think? Historically, I would agree with you. Um, and uh, but just having dealt with um, some of the counties recently, such as Baldwin County and Escambia County and the Panhandle of Florida on development projects, it seems like they have gotten just as uh, tough, if not tougher to deal with than some of the, the city municipalities that we've traditionally dealt with. Um, certainly there's wisdom of, you know, um, for instance, in Baldwin County, there are still unzoned un areas where, you know, they don't have the right to tell you you can't use it for a certain use as long as you comply with the parameters of that use in the zoning ordinance. So as long as you, you build it the way it should be built, they don't really have any rights to tell you. Um, but there's been a huge push to, to zone areas that have, historically been unzoned in Baldwin County. And so we've seen, I don't know, six or seven districts in the last two years become zoned. Um, and I, I, blame, I blame Dollar General because that's typically what happens. Dollar General goes and locates in an unzoned area on the corner and all the residents get up in arms and then they vote in zoning in that district. And then, you know, so... I blame Dollar General and apartments. Let me put it out. You know, multifamily. Those those two tend to get the residents up in arms, and they want to vote in zoning. And a lot of times, I think it's foolish. They don't realize how badly they're. A lot of times, they're hurting their their land values. Um, you know, I've seen some really um, poorly zoned properties that are going to come back to bite those people in the long run. And typically it's funny, we see it that it'll take, there'll be an unzoned area that a lot of developers will move in and build some neighborhoods. Uh, and then those people in the neighborhoods don't want more neighborhoods that built next door. And so, so they come in and they vote in zoning. It's kind of like, uh, I got my piece and we'll close, close the door behind me. Um, but anyway, that's all neither here nor there. But we did just have a, very long entitlement process for a storage facility in Escambia County, um, just on the outskirts of Pensacola. Um, and so, you know, historically, the, the counties have been a lot easier to deal with, but lately it seems like they've uh, sharpened their claws as well. Um, and um, now, obviously, the more rural you get the count in the counties and the and even the cities are easier and easier to deal with. But in these higher growth areas there, I think there's a lot of people um, trying to slow down growth um, and they've perfected the slow walk through the system to where you may get your entitlement, but they're going to slow you down as, 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 as much as possible to get through there. But, so what's the typical time frame you expect? Um, it's very, very, uh, market dependent. Um, in the Scambia County, we had, um, it took us 
18 months from contract to um, approvals on a on a pro, on that self storage facility. Uh, part of that, I'll take that. I'll take part of that on own, and part of that was the um, the fact that we were using an engineer out from outside of that market, and um, we they were reading the the ordinance, the tree ordinance specifically, um, in such a manner that you know we we felt like we were doing the right thing, and and what we didn't know is local market there had been some conversation going that basically put uh took out the made the county less incentivized to be willing to let people take out tree heritage trees that that they in years past had been allowed to remove so we had to kind of go back and redesign and do some things and go back through but um but I mean, there were times where we're again back to the slow walk. I mean, like where we just couldn't get anybody's answer, and you've got, you know, five different departments that have to sign off, and and you know, you got a couple of departments that just won't even respond, and it's been it's it's been a mess. But that's eighteen months, and then the, on the flip side, I'd say on the short side, it's ninety days. But um, that's that's for a slam dunk. It's for a it's entitled for what you need it to be. It's not requiring a site plan approval by the uh, city council or planning commission. Uh, so if, if you've got a site like that, you know, it's at least 90 days just to get, get drawings in and, and, uh, and, and applied for and approved. But, you know, so it's very market dependent. What are yep. you running? What are you running into? timeline was yeah for like those land entitlement projects we expect some like 12 to 18 months at least yeah. on average so it doesn't shock me at all yeah. uh, although like i've heard in like the west coast they like to make it even more difficult and even more expensive with all these fees and processes like it might take 18 months just to get the first thing approved then you still got like another year or two or something so it definitely try to avoid stuff like that but that's why like Texas market is some very biased, obviously, living here, growing up here. But I have yeah. heard that generally we're a little bit more friendly other than Austin. I heard Austin has become a lot more difficult. And there's a liberal, liberal bubble anyway, so they've always been a, a different um, thing to deal with. But I have heard recently, like, Dallas County has just become so overwhelmed with applications overall that they've Got a little slower too, but I don't think they give you quite as much trouble in getting it approved. It's just the resource limitations. You know? Now, Houston has no zoning. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Houston's weird like that. They just kind of base it based on what's surrounding there. And uh, the, the main thing there too is like the, the floodplains. And with flood insurance requirements, stuff like that. So I know some people just pass on that market entirely, but then they're overlooking certain opportunities. So yeah, everyone's got their preferences. But yeah, I mean, on, on a national scale, at least for like single family developments, it's it's like right up there with Dallas, like number one and two spots for like oh, wow. 100 and 200 lot subdivision type things these national builders are building. Gotcha. So definitely on the map, yeah. Um, there was... Something else I was going to ask, and it's oh yeah, um, the financing you mentioned for multifamily, 
the bridge loans, these variable rates that are getting ratcheted up, obviously, as rates have gone up. What's the usual financing that you do on your projects? So uh, most of our investments have a lifespan um, of five years is what we're shooting for. So we, we get fixed rate debt for five years. Um, we use a variety of bank financing, um, some, some CMBS. Now the CMBS is uh, 10-year, uh, and then we're currently about to close one with a life insurance company loan but all all of those uh except the cmbs are five-year fixed uh, we try to push our amortization out to about 25 years um and we we look depending on how heavy of a value add lift we have we try to get you know a year or two of interest only period while we're uh you know <clears throat> making renovations to the property and and turning over the rent roll and things like that so um uh, you know, we're, we're right now we're, well, we're assuming a CMBS loan at a 485 rate. We're originating a new life insurance loan right now at a 585 rate. Uh, and then we're seeing bank financing currently, um, you know, in the 8% range, give or take, depending on who, who it's, who it's with and what their appetite is for the, for the loan. So, um, but we, we do fix all of our rates. There could be an argument right now that it's maybe now's the time to float. Maybe you see lower rates moving forward. And um, while I certainly believe there are some lower rates that will have to come, um, you know, we just not seeing enough delta between the fixed and the floating rate to make it worth taking that risk on. And if rates move down substantially, um, we try to, other than life and life co and CMBS, we try to make it where our bank loans don't have any prepayment penalties and we can refinance. Um, so, uh, so we've, we've, we've never, never taken on a floating rate debt at this point. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I mentioned that it reduces a lot of heartburn and anxiety in terms of just the underwriting. You know it's going to work because you underwrote it at that number, so it makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I will point out probably one of our biggest challenges at the moment is, is uh, insurance, especially in our coastal properties. Wind has gotten to be crazy. Um, now, you know, most of the industrial properties are net lease, uh, at least sing, at least double net or if not triple net, and therefore we can, you know, pass that through. But it still becomes an issue. You know, you don't want that load on your tenants either. Um, it kind of limits what, how much base rate rent you can get. Um, but uh, on storage that are gross leases, you know, we're we're pretty much having to eat that. Although we feel like it'll translate through to rate eventually. And, you know, the way we look at interest rates uh, is similar to the, the insurance rates at the moment is if we can make the deals work today, we feel very with and lock in our, our rates. We feel very comfortable that uh, they'll, they'll continue to work. A, our interest rates are locked in. B, uh, we kind of had a similar situation with insurance rates after Hurricane Katrina a lot of the carriers pulled out of the market. Rates went sky high. 
it's a, it's a, it was a long, nearly 10 year long process, but eventually uh, new carriers moved into the market to, I won't say predatorily, but they, you know, come in at these really high rates. Um, and, and, you know, that, so that, that draws them in, you get a couple of years without a large storm, people move back, uh, more carriers start coming in to get some competition back in the market and it settles down and comes back down. So we kind of feel like we're in a very similar, we're in, in, in we're in that stage where they're kind of plateauing right now. But we've had properties <laughs> that insurance has gone up fourfold in two years. So uh, they've doubled twice in two years period, which is, I don't know if you guys are seeing that in Texas at all. Um, I know Louisiana is having issues. Florida's terrible. Um, I read about California's insurance problems, uh, but we're seeing some pressure on our inland properties, but the, the coastal stuff, the cat stuff is in particular, we're, we're having issues with insurance. Um, but we kind of look at that same as the interest rates. If we can make them work at these rates, we feel really good about them moving forward. Okay. Yeah, I've heard that it's been a, a similar issue with multifamily deals as well. I'm just trying yeah. to underwrite that with the increase in insurance. Just like overall inflation, just just like if they have to pay to replace a roof or something, like the cost of that material has gone up dramatically as well since, I guess, a few years back, like you said. Which you're you're right is which is is the difference from what we saw in Katrina. With Katrina, it was just a a risk of loss that they had, and so they they wrote the rates higher. <clears throat> what we're what we're facing now is the list of risk of loss, and they're they're quoting higher rates, but they're also having to increase the TIV, the total insured value of the properties, because. Uh, of replacement costs having gone so high. So it is kind of a double whammy. And we we do not believe, re, you know, replacement costs, material and labor costs are going to come down significantly. Uh, we may, they may plateau, they may have a little bit of retract, uh, retracement, but I don't, I, we feel like, you know, it's, you know, once they get up there, it's, they, they might come down a little bit and settle down, but we don't foresee that. So, so, you know, t the TIV part, the replacement cost part of the insurance is uh, is an issue that won't be fixed by competition. So that there will there still be some issues with insurance. So, like you're, you're right about that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when, when prices go up, it's they're not ever really going to go back to like 1950s values or something. <laughs> prices yeah. are just up. Yeah. Um, I mean, we, we saw a pretty good decrease in, in construction costs, you know, in 08 through 10, but, um, you know, don't see that coming anytime soon. Um, and we're way higher than that now. So <clears throat> we're, we're, you know, we, we may get some relief and, and, and I hope it does settle into a more, uh, you know, more stable market rather than it, what it's been. And, and materials, some materials are still very difficult to get. Um, so um, we hope to see some relief there, but we don't expect to see a lot. Um, right. So. That makes sense. Okay. Um, 
One of the last questions I wanted to ask is the, the tax implications investing as an LP. Um, is it the same as like multifamily or are there any other additional advantages? Very similar to multifamily. We do cost segregation studies on all of our properties when we acquire them. And we have a lot of the same bonus depreciation um, abilities as multifamily does. So we'll take all the bonus depreciation that we can. Obviously, in 23, that got limited down to 80%. and 24, would be 60%, although there is a bill making its way through now that would... Uh, reinstate the 100% bonus depreciation back and, and retroactively to 23. So we're waiting to we're waiting to file our 23 taxes um, to see if that bill makes it through. Um, but you know we take a good bit of depreciation in year one, all the bonus depreciation um, that we can in year one, and that all passes through Parapasu to all the LPs. So um, so yeah, it's a it's a a uh, big tax advantage. Uh, that's why that's a big tax advantage of real estate in general, right? So, not so much land, but um, but uh, improved real estate. We you know we take as much depreciation as we can. One other uh, item we're looking at right now is the 179D um, uh, tax deductions that are available. Uh, those have to do that. Those have to do with energy efficiency, um, and I'm really not an expert on this. Uh, but basically, I think they go back to the 2006 Energy Code, and as long as your building is improved beyond the 2006, I believe it's the 2006. Don't quote me on that. But Energy Code, then you can take these deductions, and it's a per square foot deduction, um, and then. Recently, they juiced that up with a, a whole uh, addition to that law. So it's gotten to be where you know you can take between a dollar and three dollars. Again, don't quote me on this uh, deduction, and it's it's a it's a it's a depreciation. So it, it does go against your basis, um, and you know we're looking at that. The problem we've come in, run into currently is we haven't found a provider who's willing to do those reports at a cost that makes it worthwhile. So uh, we're, we're working on that, but that's another way we're looking to pass through additional depreciation to our, to our LPs. Okay. Very interesting. Um, can you explain the, the bonus depreciation a little bit more like the benefit behind it? Cause right now, just from a high level, I would just think from a time value of money perspective, you're just offsetting even more income. But what if you're already like showing kind of negative income from like the cost segregation? Why do you need that bonus depreciation and all that? Well, so if I understand your question right, Mason, you're asking why would you need more depreciation if you're already at negative, but based on the cost seg? So yeah, is it, is it like the value of like carrying that loss forward to apply to future income streams? So, so that, that, yeah, I would say it's two two things. Um, one is it allows our LPs and our investors to offset other income, other passive income that they have. They can use. So if we we continue to pass through more losses, they can use it to offset not only the income they're receiving from our quarterly distributions but they can use it to offset other passive income, right? 
and that that income would be taxed at an ordinary income tax bracket based on their tax bracket as ordinary income. We're going to defer that out for, in our case, five years. Our investments are five years. In five years from now, <clears throat> then they we we do have to recapture that. But now we recaptured it at twenty five percent, which is um, below what you know any of our investors' tax bracket would be. So. Um, so we're deferring the, tax, deferring the taxes. We can defer not only the income that they receive from our investments, but they can income they receive from other investments. And then we're converting it to that deferred um, cap, that, that um, 25%. So that's kind of the benefits we see in it. The bonus depreciation comes in. Uh, I, I'm not sure if this was what you're asking, but... Um, you know, the, the engineering study on that cost segregation, they go in and they, they put all the different items in the building, all the improvements, including paving and everything, and they put them in different buckets. And the current code says that we can take uh, the five, seven, and 15-year buckets, the, the stuff you'd normally depreciate over five, seven, or 15 years, and take it all as bonus depreciation or Again, it was 100% in year one. Last year, 23, it, it went down to 80% in year one. And then now um, in 24, it'll be 60% in year one. So you can take all that and depreciate it all in year one. So what we tend, typically our investors receive at least the first year, most every year, they receive a, a K-1 that says they lost money that they can use to offset other income, even though they received income from us. So. That makes sense. Very interesting. Yeah, we'll see. Maybe if Trump gets back in office, we'll see even more drastic changes <laughs> to the tax code. <laughs> uh, maybe, um, you know, it's funny. Um, Every, I know that there's been a lot of talk of Trump's tax returns and how he was actually losing money and all and, and how, oh, he's not a great business person. That always cracks me up. And I think, well, you really just don't understand real estate because that means he's a great business person and he's actually deferring his taxes, even though he's making money. So, um, you know, it, it, anyway, but we'll see. But there is a bill working its way through right now that would reinstate the 100 percent bonus depreciation through to um, and reinstate it back into 23. So I think if I'm not mistaken, it's already passed the house and it's working its way through the Senate. So we're, we're hoping that it gets passed. Although I, I hear there's a bunch of garbage in that bill that we would probably not want to be passed, but I guess that's the way of Washington, right? They, it's a little give and take. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, just back to that, the 25% being like lowest tax bracket in the back end when you have to recapture, why is it at the lowest tax bracket or at least like the lowest for your investors? Well, let me, so the lowest tax bracket would be long-term capital gains. <clears throat> um, so, so it's, it's not the lowest. So, but depreciation recapture for whatever reason they assigned it 25%. So uh, it is depreciation recapture is 25%. Now, if, 
if we hadn't appreciated it and we weren't uh, for, for all the portion that's not depreciated that we actually get a gain on that was not depreciated, that goes into the long-term capital gains bucket. And that is, uh, you know, even lower, whatever, 18% uh, or, or whatever it is now, I forget, 20%, 18%. Um, but ordinary income is taxed significantly higher than both of those, right? Depending on your tax bracket, it can be 30, 35, 37%. So um, by converting any of those, what, what your taxable liability from that higher tax bracket down to a lower tax bracket has benefit and then moving that tax liability down the road also has benefit. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. I'm sure there's, there's a whole other Pandora's box that we're opening in terms of all of the tax implications, <laughs> but that's helpful to over overview and understand at least. Yeah. And um, I guess this is where I should say I'm not an attorney and I'm not a CPA. <laughs> so yeah, do, your, right. do your research, but uh, we, um, most of our LPs want as much depreciation passed through as possible. So we do what we can to do that. And like I said, on the cost segregation studies, it's very cost effective. The studies are, you know, we pay a very small percentage of what the depreciation we can pass through is. On the 179D studies, you know, we're being quoted like 10% of whatever that depreciation is, what they want us to pay them for the report. Um, and so that kind of offsets that difference between the recapture of 25 and, and maybe a 35 tax bracket gets offset with what we'd have to pay for that report. So we're, we're still scratching our heads on, does that really work? Does that really, is it worth, is the juice worth the squeeze at that point? So. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Like maybe they're hoping that people don't, certain customers that don't do as much thinking about it and just pay them. <laughs> just close the eyes and sign the invoice and pay it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, for some people, just pushing the, the, the deferring the liability out five years is, is worth it. So maybe, you know, um, maybe it is worth it. But for us, we, we try to look at it holistically from a total return, you know, of that expense and of course you can deduct the cost of those reports so there's that so um but uh so we're still scratching our head that's tbd we're still working on that and whether or not that will be a, a, a strategy we use okay but the cost segs are pretty much automatic for us um so yeah i mean I think we've had one property we didn't do a cost seg on. It was due to its size, and um, and then we had several people in it that were actually in a 1031 exchange, so their basis was already eroded, and so we it just didn't make sense to uh, go after the bonus depreciation on that one. It was a smaller deal anyway. But other than that, we've done cost segs on all of our um, all of our properties. Okay. Perfect. Well, I think that we've hit on most everything I wanted to discuss. So uh, what kind of person are you looking to, to get in touch with and how could they get in touch with you if they want to learn more and connect with you? Right. Well, I, 
I love, as you can tell, I love talking about any real estate all the time. So um, I welcome anybody uh, get in touch with me. Where uh, my, my email is jfriedman at stoicep.com. Uh, Stoic uh, EP, like equity partners.com. And then I'm, I'm on LinkedIn as well. Um, I, it was a New Year's uh, resolution to get off of Twitter. So I was spending too much time on, on X, I should say. So uh, pretty much LinkedIn and email is the easiest way to, to hit me up. But, um, you know, we are actively raising a fund. It's a $25 million in equity fund. We're at seven and a half million on our raise. So we're, we're actively looking for LPs. Um, our minimum check size is 50,000. Um, and uh, we're con- we'll continue to raise and deploy that capital throughout 2024, and then that that window will shut, and um, we'll we'll start fund number two at that point. So we 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 started with ten syndicated deals, uh, deal by deal. We've just launched this fund, uh, and we're about to close on the first two assets in that fund. So it's not completely blind. Uh, we do have assets in there. Uh, but we'd love to talk to anybody interested in investing in Flex Industrial. So. All right. Excellent. Is that usually 506C offerings? Um, this is a B. Uh, we've okay. usually, usually did C. Um, this one's B, so we could talk about it a little more and do a little bit more marketing behind it. Okay. Yeah. Got it. That's helpful. All right. Well, yeah, I'll put all that in the show notes and hopefully this was helpful for everyone. I, I found it very interesting myself. So thanks a lot for jumping on the show. Yeah, very good. I appreciate enjoyed meeting you and uh, appreciate you having me on. Hey guys, I appreciate you taking the time to listen or watch this episode. As you might've noticed, we don't run ads, but what I would like you to do is just subscribe to our YouTube channel. That would help us out tremendously. You don't even have to leave a review, but if you do feel like you would gain a lot of value from this, episode, feel free to share it with your friends and comment, like, subscribe, all that. But subscribing to YouTube would be what helps us the most. That's the only thing I ask. Thanks a lot. And if you do want to get in touch with me, feel free to email me at mason at scalablerei.com. Thanks a lot.